So I've made a regular effort on developers eating the world to talk about people and their career development. And the big reason I do that is number one, I hope that some of the listeners of the show are people who are just getting in the application development field. And I, in some small part in helping them get off on the right foot, but also because it's really interesting to me because the world of career development in tech has changed dramatically. You have coding camps, you have a much larger focus, um, fortunately, on diversity in underrepresented audiences. And I feel like I've done a pretty good job of bringing career switchers and underrepresented audiences onto the podcast. But my next guest, it is her job. So Kim, why don't you quickly introduce yourself and tell us about what you do? Hello, everyone. Um, Thank you for inviting me to your podcast, Chris. It's very exciting to be part of this uh, little movement that you have here. Um, So I am a software engineer and tech coach at Tech Returners. So my role is to help underrepresented people upskill and transform themselves into the software engineering domain for a successful career in technology. So I coach not only people entering the technology sphere but I also help to upskill existing engineers DevOps concepts from their early careers up until their senior level as well. Um, In my spare time I do a lot of um, workshops, free workshops in the community to enable access to digital education for all because I believe it's important that we um, make sure that people who cannot afford to go camps or access these online courses, have access to the materials so that they can realize their potential as well. That's fantastic. And one of the things that I've noticed just coming from my computer science, you know, formal computer science university degree, I was not set up well to be a coder, a developer. I was not set up well to build things. I was set up to understand architectures and algorithms and database structures and all that stuff. And the database structure stuff, by the way, most of it is not even relevant. As soon as NoSQL came out, you know, it kind of changed the whole thing. So, but I have noticed that with like these more kind of grassroots organic methods of becoming a developer, it's actually produced a much higher quality of engineer. What are you seeing in particular in the people who are already in tech as like trends in where, you know, maybe there's been deficiencies and they haven't been taught specific things or they're not thinking about things in, you know, maybe a full stack way or like you said, DevOps, et cetera. So I think in terms of, if I understood your question correctly there, in terms of people entering technology from various different disciplines, they have something different to bring that, say, a computer science graduate may not um, bring. Not to say that computer science graduates don't have those skill sets. Um, I think everyone can contribute to any stage of their career. I think the key skills um, that really set apart, say, junior engineers to mid-level and senior engineers is the ability to work across different business functions and be able to verbalize 
um, their work and work across different stakeholders and be able to drive products forward in, in the right way. And you can only do that if you step outside of your engineering sphere um, and venture out into the, uh, the biz, so-called business um, that a lot of developers and engineers usually fear is interacting with the business. So a lot of these people coming in have that prior experience that really sets them apart. Yeah, and actually that's my next question is around, do you see a trend of career switchers from where they've come from? So on, on this episode, we've had teachers, We've had people who come from government. We have people who come from running a restaurant, even, you know, that it's been a wide range, but I mean, I've, and it's a very small sample size, but I think that I've seen quite a few come from education. Have, have you seen a trend in terms of where they come from? And then I, I will echo that point, which is really interesting is they do have kind of a more holistic mindset of there's other aspects of this business besides me writing code. I can definitely see a trend qualitative qualitatively based on what I've seen. Um, I don't know the official data here in the UK and globally, but those who are currently teaching, say, mathematical concepts or scientific concepts, or maybe they are teaching in school on computer science concepts, tend to getting into more the commercial side of technology um, and the reason they do that I'm just quoting one of my mentees is um, the remuneration and the, the support and career growth that a commercial environment offers um, compared to the the education um, sector here again I think technology education has definitely changed there's a lot of boot camp offerings now a lot of online courses and this seems to be where the growth is currently set, but there's a lot more that needs to be done in the schools to fix the pipeline. So we are concentrating on entry level, we're concentrating on upskilling, but a lot of these talented educators are actually leaving the school environment. So there's a massive hole to fill there. Yeah, and you just reminded me of another guest we had. And after this episode, I'm gonna that's what I was just making a note to send you his contact information because he's actually followed a similar path. Um, he went from education, I think probably teaching math or, or one of the sciences, into becoming a full-time developer, SRE. Now he started in he's CTO at an organization here in Colorado doing something very similar to what you're doing. So it's, that's fascinating to me. What was your career background? So you say you were a career switcher as well. What was your career background prior to entering tech? I had about two or three different careers in the course of my, you know, 27 years in this planet so far. So I studied geography at my bachelor's level at university. I then did a master's in environmental modeling because I thought I would be saving the planet and working to reduce climate change. I became an energy analyst. So I was analyzing energy markets for about six months, 
worked on a freelance project on some sort of market carbon markets and, and different ways to price companies based on their carbon emissions. Then I became a sustainability consultant. So I went around different buildings, making sure they are well audited according to some environmental sort of compliance factors, etc. And then at that consultancy that I was involved in, I was asked to essentially head up a little, uh, little software team. So I remember my director at the time said, uh, Kim, do you want to have a 50-50 role as a consultant and a, a business analyst, or do you want to go all in as a business consultant to bridge um, business and technology? So me being me, I turned up the next morning and said, yes, I will do that with no prior technology knowledge. So I learned about Agile on the job. I learned about AWS on the job. I learned about all to do with, you know, um, coding cleanly, also disaster recovery. I learned it on the job by asking questions. And then there was one point where I thought, I'm actually quite interested in the technology here. So I then pursued a fellowship program at a coding boot camp here in London. And then since then, I've worked um, for two or three different companies in, in the technology industry and in finance and also at a FTSE 250 company on a train and ticketing platform. And after doing all of that, I decided that my passion lies in teaching and running workshops for the community. And I used to do that in my spare time and I still do. But I, I had that thing niggling at the back of my mind that I wanted it to be my full-time job, which is why I took on this role at Tech Returners, so I can do both the software engineering side of things, as well as the community engagement and tech coaching on DevOps and um, coding fundamentals. So that that is fantastic. And I'll ha I have to say that one of the other trends that I've seen in everybody who's you know gone through coding camps and career switching is this element of grit. There isn't a single one that didn't have grit and drive that put them in a very interesting position because they were very passionate about what they were doing. And that passion, you know, fuels and pushes a lot of the very complex concepts that you have to learn. You've said a few times, and, and I almost always ask this question of, of people who come out of code camps of, you know, are they teaching you about the business of building applications? So you have, you know, communicating with your end users and your business stakeholders, but you also have what you've said, DevOps, which is like all the stuff you have to do to just ship your code. And when I was in school, DevOps wasn't a concept, but we didn't learn about the ecosystem that surrounds this little bubble of functionality that you're, you're building. Do you find you spend a lot of time coaching on the ideas, uh, the concepts around DevOps and CICD and all of that? Yes. So in my current company, we, we have a DevOps upskill program. So the reason why I'm focused on this area is a lot of bootcamp graduates and career switchers enter their first role in technology and they do feel a bit lost. And I was the same when I first finished a bootcamp. 12 weeks or eight weeks in a bootcamp is not enough time to really master the fundamentals of software and DevOps. It really takes 
more lifelong learning and learning in the right direction to be able to understand these concepts. So a lot of the bootcamp graduates within their first year in a tech role, they are expected to not only do say the front end or back end engineering, but they also been tasked with things like creating CICD pipelines, helping um, with Terraform to clean those scripts up, helping with observability, and all of these words that a bootcamp graduate would not have covered in their program. So a lot of them come into course like DevOps upskill and they're very happy because we, you know, we, we show them that it's not just about the cloud technologies or getting that certificate, right? Because you can go online and get, you know, AWS certified or Azure certified and it can feel a bit like a checkbox exercise, but DevOps is more than that. It's a bit more of a culture and a philosophy and a way of working. And I always say to the program participants, it's a way of sparking a conversation with a diff different team. That's all it is. That DevOps, you know, you might have a platform engineering team. You might have maybe that, that sort of DevOps um, expert in-house within your immediate engineering squad but again it's it's to spark that conversation to ensure that you've got that that flow continuous flow from the coding and the actual bits and pieces for your feature and also planning and feeding that back into um, a way of measuring how healthy your application is all the way back into the coding and and in a boot camp you don't necessarily make that connection or you you'll be taught is learn to code to get your first role that that's all you you'll get taught so there's definitely a gap in the market right now for um programs to upskill people for sure yeah and the term soft skills t-shape individual are all terms that have been kind of thrown around about you know Kind of understanding the business, being able to write, being able to communicate. The reality is they're not soft skills at all. They, these are almost mandatory if you plan on advancing your career to become an engineering manager, etc. And this may not be a fair question, but what is kind of the first thing you would tell, you know, a heads down coder they should do to try to open up the doors to more communication with other stakeholders in their organization besides just their developer peers? I think I wrote a blog about this at one point, so I'm just going to remember what I wrote there. So one of the first, first things is thinking of value. So each person in the organization and in your team will have a different set of values. So for example, a product owner is is sort of valuing where the vision of the product is heading is the product suiting the customers are we on track what are the priorities whereas say a platform engineer might value um, your input in terms of what what you might need in terms of stability and resilience and whether the application will be getting more traffic anytime soon and planning for that and whereas an engineer might be focused on the, the task ahead. So thinking in terms of test-driven development and well-written code so that you can extend on it. So first of all, think what the value is. And based on that value, think about how you um, can add something new to help that person meet their, their goals and, and their values and, 
And if you think about that, as a, as a team, your goals are all shared, you're reaching the same destination, but each person might be working on or focusing on different set of things. So that's first thing is value. Second thing is visibility. Make sure that everything you do is visible because in a remote world, it, it's not very easy for someone to, to look and know what you're working on or what you might need. Um, to be able to unblock yourself from moving forward so make sure that you get that visibility so it might be the case of having that extra meeting to visualize the technical debt for example so as a product manager or business analyst those people might not have that visibility of the technical backlog so make sure that that is visualized in a clear way maybe on the board and have a meeting to really prioritize. The more visual you can be, um, the more successful your, your team will be. And, and it might seem quite scary because you might have to have some conversations which are quite straightforward, like this isn't working or these things need to be done first to enable the next feature to be made. But once you open that conversation up, it makes it a lot easier rather than hiding it away and pretending that it's not there. Yeah, it, the the trend of enterprises implementing pipeline analytics has picked up a lot. So Adora metrics, flow metrics, and this is not an individual task, but, and I think all enterprises have to go there. Like it's impossible to know if you're doing well, if you don't have a baseline and look historically. So like change failure rate, mean time to recovery, all of that stuff. And it helps the individual one of the the other thing that's a benefit of being able to have these visualizations and, and communicate both from an individual level and a team level, I think, is one thing that engineering teams do not do a good job at, which is justifying when they need money. <laughs> so they need to buy something, they need more headcount, they need more resources, they are really bad at saying why. They know why themselves, but they can't communicate why. And so they don't get it. And then they get frustrated. And so there's that as well, in addition to just supporting your career. Has it happened in, in your coaching that you've actually bleeded over into not just individuals, but broader teams and even organizations? Or does it tend to stick to the individual? So in our current program at the moment, we have some engineering represent representatives from different businesses. So we, we don't necessarily focus on one organization entirely, but the questions that we get asked are sometimes organization specific, but different people can learn from different ways that organizations do things. So our main aim is to create these engineers who can then go back into the organization and be able to make a difference or be able to spark that conversation. So um, one example is we had one engineer who who's literally said that he was a backend engineer, but he wanted to learn more DevOps skills to be able to then bring that into his immediate team instead of having that cost of handover to, to a different team. And that sort of gets lost in translation. So he wanted to upskill himself to be able to, to manage the infrastructure um, within his team. So that's an example of, of a benefit of upskilling in DevOps and 
what we're finding is whether people are focusing on front end or back end engineering, or maybe they work on data science, a little bit of knowledge on cloud engineering and, and DevOps concepts is, is really handy for progressing in an engineering role. Yeah, I actually think that you have an interesting business opportunity if you guys aren't already doing this and also being on the, the recruiting side and, you know, help facilitate the growth of teams. A lot of my customers that I've communicated with, we actually have a lot of conversations on culture and recruiting because it's really hard. If you're not one of the top tech companies, it's really hard to bring in you know, top tier tech talent to, to get interest from them. But also that how you interview matters a lot because you have to have culture as a part of your interviewing process. You can't just kind of assume it's going to be there. The application is always a reflection of the team who built it. And so I think that matters a lot because you are actually directly impacting the quality of the team that built it. So that's, that's super cool. Smart business. <laughs> yeah, it is smart. We're, I'm actually going to be involved within the team to design the programs going forward. So we're undergoing a big um, program transformation and hopefully, maybe I'm a bit biased, hopefully it will be one of the best in the UK and we're going we're gonna to go for global dominance at, at some point um, in, in the future, but it's it's very difficult, I think, on that point, very difficult also to hire for tech coaches. So it's not just in engineering right. teams that people found the difficulty, it's the tech coaches, because not only do you have to learn new concepts, and I have to learn new concepts all the time, and I get asked questions where I'm like, I need to go away and do that research to come back to you on an answer that you deserve. And I think finding tech coaches that that cares is more difficult than than you think. Yeah, and one could argue that you have to have a similar background to you that has a wide range of experiences to be a tech coach because it's going to be hard to relate to the engineers if you don't can't put yourself, you know, in their journey as well. That's that's fascinating. So, Sometimes on the show, I play a terminology game where I give you three terms and all I'm looking for is impressions. <laughs> no, there's no right or wrong answers. And, and you okay, said, good. You said uh, I was going to say it didn't prepare for this exam. No, no, no. <laughs> and I don't prepare either. I just think of them on the fly. But all of them, um, a few of them you've you've already said on your own. But the first one I, I want to put give you, I think, is interesting because for the longest time, and I feel like it's been kind of going away, we use this term full stack engineer. Everybody wanted a full stack engineer. And I think when we talk about it, the reality of it is, yeah, maybe you understand the entire stack, but you're not developing the entire stack. So your term is full stack engineer. There's no such thing as a full stack engineer. <laughs> I'm sorry if I've upset a lot of people out there, but there's no such thing. And the reason is if you think about a college or university degree, people will major or minor in certain topics based on their preferences and their sort of learning um, opportunities. So I think 
we need to be using the terms like major or minor, for example. So I would say I major mainly on the back end and data and DevOps side of things, but I can make do with the front end. I can probably Google my way through and use certain templates, but I'm not by all means not an expert. So if if I said I'm I'm full stack, then that's what I, I mean. Yep. Well you have somebody who agrees with you. So I agree with you. It's not a thing. I was guilty of using the term though when it came out because it certainly sounds cool. But I think it doesn't do justice to the people who are interviewing for those roles. So another term you already used, which is observability. <laughs> no, observability. So I always think it in terms of a plane. So if you think of a plane and the black box, all the instruments on the plane, you've got the wing speed, the wind speeds, you've got other metrics. I'm not an aerodynamics expert, as you can tell. But you've got these instruments that measure the plane. So if you think of an application that your team has built, like the analogy of the plane, you need to be able to have some sort of visibility on the different parts of your system and what's going on. So you have things like logs that you can then have some messages to then measure or the sort of status of say the wind speed not that you might measure the wind speed in your application so observability is essentially being able to have a neat way to look into that data and have an insight that is meaningful so just collecting your logs is not enough because you'll end up with a lot of data to trawl through and it might not be meaningful for you so observability is being able to have some simple way to communicate the key data sets that you um, are measuring to enable your application to be successful. So health metrics, for example, maybe traffic numbers. And, and this is observability, I think. I think yeah. I haven't really done that well, with I, vision. I the textbook definition from the industry industry or manufacturing, sorry, days is basically comes from the same idea which is looking at the output of a system to understand what happened in in the system and and i think that there's been a lot of definitions around it and i think it's evolving i i personally think it's evolving in the direction of more of a a practice than where it started, which was the three pillars of observability logs traces and spans you know because that is exactly what you said is all of those are just data yeah you need you need to know where it's coming from <laughs> you can't you can't just swim through the data and expect to find the right thing like the platform needs to tell you yeah absolutely and in that analogy of the plane you're not only looking at the status of what has gone on um currently and also in the past you're looking into the future as well so you're looking into the predictive um, aspects based on the data that you've seen before and this is really powerful for teams because it enables you to to plan and be a bit more proactive to to make sure that based on 
certain data trends, you'll be able to spot it before your customers spot it. So for example, um, you might have a payment system that might have to handle a million users tomorrow based on the current data that you have. Is there some predictive model that you can run in a simple dashboard view that can then look back and say what you need to change in the components of your system and adjust to be able to meet um, that change? Yeah. And also testing fits into that, that prediction as well. And I think people underestimate the power of testing and testing engineers. Hopefully some of your um, mentees come from the testing world because they are in particular an audience that's really bad at communicating about why what they do is so important. But um, you have in the area of real user monitoring and synthetics to, to kind of extrapolate and, and predict the future a little bit. So my last term was actually, it's a term and a question, because you talked about bringing the business in, um, bringing DevOps in, you know, understanding value stream, et cetera. What about security, DevSecOps? Uh, the security is one of those topics, which is more my minor. Um, but security is more important than people make it out to be. So for example, a pre part of the program, we strip all the concepts down and we go, right, let's look at a virtual private cloud. Let's look at subnets. And it's at this level that say an engineering bootcamp, you don't learn, which is crucial. So you can't just make all your infrastructure and put it somewhere on the cloud you have to think about okay in terms of the database where does it have to sit it needs to be on its own private subnet for example but if you talk in those terms people go okay so what what is this subnet stuff you're, you're talking about what does it mean to me so security is i don't know like OWASP top 10 is probably one of the most go-to um things for security but it's an area that I think is lacking in terms of training people in the industry. I think basic things like don't put passwords in plain text into GitHub is probably the lowest level of security that you can pop in, but you've got high level of security at cloud level. So again, it's not really a big topic in the industry and it needs to be. Um, at the moment, it's not as common in many companies. They do have secure coding, but it's not a common practice that they have right now. So yeah, another opportunity, I think, um, to tap into that sphere. I'm glad you said the word practice. So I'll give you my point of view because I'm very opinionated about this topic, um, that DevSecOps is a practice and it has three primary use cases. Build more secure apps. So that's SonarCube for code quality, X-Ray for artifact scanning. Secure the software factory. So that's don't leak secrets. Don't give the wrong people access to your repo. See who's getting access. And then secure the applications in production, which is what we largely already understand. But those first two use cases, you're right. Enterprises, they're thinking about it a lot, especially secure the software factory because it's been in the news a lot. But it's still being figured out. And I think developers, it's not going to become their responsibility, but they have, they have to be aware and, and understand it. Well, to close it out, you've produced a lot of content. You're doing a whole bunch of things. You, you do workshops. 
how would people find your workshops and your sessions and your content if they wanted to? You can follow me on Twitter. Hopefully the Twitter will be available in the show notes. So I'll pop that over to Chris. It's at the Kimmy Cola. And I'm usually on Twitter, so I share on there if there's any workshops coming up. And my website is also available there. And I'm also building a platform in my spare time to help school children learn about technology and computing as well. So that's going to be launched later this month. So, yeah, keep your eyes out for that. 